This episode of The Telegram is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. And as a Telegram podcast listener, you will receive 10% off your first purchase by using the offer code TELEGRAPH. Welcome to The Telegram. I'm Tim Stanley. A humane proposal or a moral outrage? As Britain steps closer to legalising assisted suicide, Lord Tebbit tells us why it puts us on a slippery slope. Also, will Ed Miliband's European referendum gamble pay off? Or is he talking out of his backside? The government has said that it will allow a free vote on Lord Falconer's bill introducing assisted suicide. And the prospect of legislation has both horrified social conservatives and thrilled social liberals. One of the first MPs to announce that he would vote for the bill was Norman Lamb, the minister, it might surprise you to hear, who is in charge of disabled and elderly people. The state should not stand in the way of people determined to end their lives, said Mr Lamb, so long as strict safeguards are in place. Well, we're going to debate the facts about assisted suicide, how it has worked out overseas, how many people are likely to opt for it, and what kind of effect it has upon palliative care. But first, let's lay out the moral arguments. Lord Tebbit has written a powerful blog post for The Telegraph saying that Britain is now on a slippery slope. Well, Lord Tebbit joins us down the telephone, and I'd like to start by asking you, sir, to please explain your reasoning. It is as simple as this. Back when the David Steele abortion bill was brought in, he explained that it was not intended to provide abortion on demand, but it was about ending the sordid trade of the backstreet abortionists who quite often uh, botched procedures uh, inflicting pain or injury on their clients. Now, many of those who supported him did so for that reason, despite warnings that it could be a step on a very slippery slope. Well, of course, so it proved. We now have abortion on demand. Um, We have complete laxity in the matter. Women can uh, abort children on grounds of sex uh, up to the very late stages of abortion, way, way beyond where the fetus would have been capable of independent life. That's all happened from that beginning. Now we're being asked to have just a a little bill, just a little bill to make it easier for some people in extremists to be assisted to commit suicide. But nobody has recently been prosecuted, I think, for such an assistance. It depends upon the Attorney General giving his consent to the prosecution. And he does not give his consent where it's pretty clear that the suicide was not under pressure. We're opening the way for pressure to be put on people to commit suicide. Um, That's the danger to it. Right, so so you're saying that at present, uh, assisted suicide probably does happen. Yes, indeed, it does. Um, And so your fear with this particular bill, however, is that it will turn it either into an industry or into something whereby there'll be mechanisms for people to actually put pressure on people to consider doing it. Yes, the pressure would be either perhaps from a family member because the burden 
of looking after somebody in the late stages of their lives can be very heavy. Or it might be from those who think that they would benefit from the estate of the person who is being put under pressure. They're the dangers. At the moment, those people are inhibited from acting in that way for fear that they would be prosecuted. Right. Okay. Uh, Tom Chivers, I'm going to bring you in now, if you'd like to respond to some of those points. Well, I suppose I should, I'd like to start by saying, with, with all due respect, uh, Lord Tebbit hasn't made a moral case there. He's made a practical case. He's saying that we'd be on a slippery slope from... But he hasn't addressed whether or not he thinks it is right for someone to have the, the right to choose the time of their own death. Now, the analogy with abortion is often made, but I feel it's spurious. We don't know if the, if the two things will be go to the same way. What we can do is look at how... It's how this subject has played out in other countries. And I've just had a quick look before I got on here and at how it went in Washington and Oregon, for instance. And it's been 20 years since it was brought in in Oregon. And there's been about a million people have died in total in Oregon. And of all those million people, about a thousand people, roughly speaking, have chosen to get the uh, prescription for assisted dying. And about 750 have actually chosen to use it. This is not an epidemic. It has not gone into a slippery slope. So I don't I don't think just because a different subject, abortion, has gone a different way, which some people don't like, that we could just say we should therefore stay away from ever doing anything again on totally different subjects because it might go the same way. Now, like I say, it's a, it's a practical case that Mr. Uh, Lord Tebbit is, is making, and I, I understand that he's worried about the slippery slope. But in other countries, they've put in lots of safeguards to prevent exactly the sort of things like pressure. In Oregon, I believe it requires confirmation by two witnesses that the, this is what the patient wants. One of those witnesses has to be unrelated to the patient. He has to not stand to gain in any way from the estate and has to not be involved in the patient's health care. The patient must be declared free of uh, mental health issues, all these sort of things. And all doctors can refuse on any grounds, whether it's moral or concern or anything like that. And the patient has 15 days afterwards before they can get it, before, before they even get given the drug, and then they can, they can cool down on. This is not... You know, if we're worried about the slippery slope, if we're worried about the practical issues, then that, well, you've already conceded the argument, I think, because we can include safeguards to stop this thing from happening. What I, what I would respect more is an argument saying life is sacred and you should never kill, allow people to take life. But that at least would be a case which I could sort of say, OK, well, put your case to the British people and, we, and people can say, well, that's your moral case. My moral case would be it is not the place of the state or anyone else to tell me when I want to end my life. If I get to a point when life is unbearable, when I'm in pain, when I know that I'm going to die, any one of these things, and with suitable safeguards around me, then I want to be able to choose that. I, I spoke to Terry Pratchett not long ago, who's uh, one of the great campaigners on this, and he said he's, of course, got Alzheimer's and uh, is quite ill, and he says he wants to die in his garden at a time of his choosing with a glass of brandy and listening to Thomas Tallis. Now, that sounds lovely. I can understand that, but I could also understand someone saying this is morally wrong, that killing is wrong. But the, the practical case, you've already conceded as far as I'm concerned, if you're, if you're arguing on practical grounds. Uh, Lord Tebbit, could you respond to that? I, you, you don't seem, if, if I get your argument correctly, you don't seem to be saying you're against um, assisted suicide on a moral principle. You're, you're saying that you're worried that if this legislation passes, it could lead to pressure being put on people. If, as Tom says... Uh, you both accept that it's, it's, it, it is morally okay for someone to do this. If there are legal safeguards, and if a doctor can help you do it in a much safer and uh, more uh, gentle way than allowing your partner to do it, why not allow it? Well, um, I'm not saying that there are no moral grounds uh, by, by any means. But for me, um, that is not the most powerful of the arguments. Right. 
It might be for many other people. And certainly I think there is a moral argument, as well as a practical one, about the concept of doctors whose mission is to maintain our health, to save us from dying, actually being strong-armed, shall we say, if not, well, at least certainly paid to end life. And I think there's a, there's a moral issue there about the role of the medical profession. I'm simply saying that if I look at what has happened in the field of abortion, we can expect the same thing to happen in the world of suicide. It's all very well to talk about the safeguards. There are safeguards all over the place about abortion. They are, as not least the Telegraph has exposed, routinely ignored by perhaps people who are in pursuit of money or of a particular moral agenda. And I'm just the guy saying, hold on, fellas. You, you don't know what you're going to do when you open the lid on that Pandora's box. Yeah. Uh, Tom, uh, Lord Tibbet does have a good point. I mean, I know there, there are issues with the analogy with abortion, but uh, of all the abortions carried out in this country at present, only 2% relate to the disability of the child or potential disability of the child or any potential physical threat to the mother's health. So the point is that if you legalize this, in principle you're doing it from a health point of view, but quite obviously it turns into something else and it becomes something on demand. So the same could be the case with assisted suicide, that yes, in principle you're doing it on a health uh, point of view, but it can very easily turn into something else. Well, it, it could be, but I mean, it could be anything. It could be that if we, uh, I don't know, if we if we ban the burqa, it means that we're f forced to, uh, le I don't know, legalise drugs. It, you, you could draw sort of random links between anything, but the point is, the the two things are very different. Abortion is about, uh, however, however you feel about the moral case of it, when, some, when a woman gets an abortion, she is not choosing to end her own life somewhere. So the, the decision to end your own life is by its, you know, just from a purely selfish point of view, is an immediately graver and different discussion to someone who doesn't believe that the child inside them is a, is a life at all. We're immediately talking about to we're entirely different decisions to be made for the person. And Again, all I can say is we, this is this is not a dis discussion we're having in isolation. We can see countries around the world who've already inst instigated things like that, and you hear the occasional individual scare story and horror story, and I, they are awful, of course. But you also hear the equivalent horror stories of people dying in agony because they can't get the, any sort of assistance. We're, there's no point in swapping scare stories. All you can say is you look at the experience of places like Oregon, places like Washington, places like, like Belgium and uh, and Germany, which I know less about, I should admit, but they, they but there has not been an epidemic of people going to die, and this has been there for 20 years in some well, places. Well, I, I will let Nor, uh, Lord Tebbit respond to that, but I just want to point out, in the past year alone in Belgium, the number of people lacking to be uh, killed by assisted suicide jumped 25%, and it's now the cause of one in 50 deaths. Uh, recent cases have included a 44-year-old woman with chronic anorexia and a 64-year-old woman with chronic depression. Of course, there's a lot of data we don't know about, and one survey found that 32% of assisted deaths are conducted without request, and 47% go unreported. In the Netherlands, there are actual mobile death units that visit old people's homes and ask them if anyone wants to die today. And again, cases include a man who elected to be killed because of a botched sex change operation and two brothers who opted for euthanasia because they were deaf and they were starting to go blind. So we're not just talking about making random connections between one legal decision and everything going crazy. There are actually good examples of this law creating a, a culture of death overseas. 
you, you want me to respond? Or yes, I do, Lord yes. Okay. Um, well, in which case, I mean, that exactly the sort of thing where you make sure you've got, whether it, for example, in the, and again, pointing to Oregon, Oregon and Washington, which I think was what I would want it to be based on, is that there is exactly that sort of thing. You can't have it on the basis of, or when, when there's clear mental health issues con, uh, concerned. And in, more generally, we don't think that someone ending their life is a criminal act. There is no other law which says you can pro prosecute someone as an accessory to something for which there was no primary crime. I don't see how helping someone to do something that they want to do should be an illegal act. I mean, again, this comes down to a moral case. If, if, we, if, so if Belgium and Germany, uh, well, Belgium, as you say, and Holland have messed up their system, which it sounds like they have, although I would also be willing to guess that there's a certain amount of spin on it to make it sound worse than it is, just because I, w I would think that, then if they've got it wrong, then get it right. Do it the way that the places that haven't had these disasters do it. Doesn't, this doesn't seem to be complicated to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I d I'm not sure that we can just dismiss the experience on the continent, which is quite close to us, mm. which is under the same jurisdictional system. Uh, we're, we're all governed now by um, law from Brussels, as opposed to a country like America, where the law is very different and the conditions are very different. I think we have to look at what is happening closer to hand. And um, I go back again and again and again to the same analogy with, with abortion. Many, many years ago, a good many children born with really dreadful defects, the midwife or the doctor would simply not take the action to ensure that that child took its breath. Probably illegal, probably illegal, but understood, not prosecuted. Then we had the passion of the tidy-minded ones who had to have it all in law. And that passion has led to, as we've all agreed, uncontrolled abortion, where mothers are allowed to kill a child which is well capable and fit to live. I, I understand, I understand that, Lord Tebbit, but I, I think Tom's argument is that uh, in the case of abortion, you're dealing with a third party. The mother's decision affects a third party, i.e. the child. In the case of assisted suicide, we are talking about someone having control over their own fate. And I, I just want well, to ask... Not necessarily. What... Right. Not necessarily. There are those who will put pressure on that individual to do the decent thing. Yeah. To do... Look, it's a terrible thing. Your life is awful. It's, it's terribly restricted. And what's more, you're ruining the life of your daughter, a bleak husband, a bleak wife, who's having to look after you. Go on. Go on. Yeah, and, and that, that, that's thing. one terrible example. But what about the man like Terry Pratchett, uh, who is completely in control of his faculties, who is looking forward to a life he doesn't want to lead? Um, th that's, that's surely a voluntary decision. And, and isn't it better that he's able to do it with the assistance of doctors in a way that's safe and, and comfortable and medicated, rather than having to rely upon a partner to kill him? If I can jump in. Um, uh, when I was speaking to Sir, Sir Terry, he had been and done a, t um, a television interview, and he'd spoken to a guy who, had, the details of come from name, but he who'd had motor neuron disease, I think, and he'd had to go to one of these Swiss clinics, Dignitas or something, and he'd gone. And um, so Terry said that if assisted suicide had been legal over here, he's pretty sure this man would have still be alive because he wouldn't have had to go. He, he wouldn't have had to go to um, Switzerland to do it. He had to go while he was still healthy enough to travel. Whereas if he'd been able to stay here and do it in his own time, then he might have been able to have a few more years with his wife and his wine cellar and all the various beautiful things. And he says that, again, it's this experience from Oregon and places, is that 
you, they, about only about 60% of the people who get these prescriptions use them. Most, you know, a good 40, 40% or so die with the medicine still in the cabinet because life is still great and life is still enjoyable, but they want that choice and they want to say, okay, the, you know, every day that is okay relies on the next day being okay. And one, sometime you'll have to say, okay, it's not going to be fun anymore. It's not going to be worth living. And you want to have that option to say, I want to get every day out of this that I can and then end it rather than have to sort of take whatever steps you can, whether that's a suicide. You know, if say you, say you want to commit suicide on your own, you have to get the only way is doing it for suicide by gun, say, then you have to do it while you're still physically capable. And the trouble is that that means immediately people who've got wasting diseases and uh, things like that, they are forced to do it much earlier than they would have to otherwise right. but with these, uh, we're, we're, if it was enshrined in law. Right. Lord Tebbit, final thought. Do you see in much of this debate a, a, a sad shift in our attitude towards the elderly and disabled? Do you see it as part of that? Do you think that there's a bigger cultural changing attitude coming here with uh, the cost of elderly care growing? Do you think this is, there's a sort of pragmatic, nihilistic thing going on here? I think there is. I think that as we look at the statistics and the articles saying what is going to be the cost of people uh, keeping them alive, um, perhaps with uh, dementia, perhaps with progressive illnesses, that it's going to become unaffordable and that the taxpayer won't put up with it. So it would be nicer and easier if they would do the decent thing. And, and just sort of stop being a drain on the resources of, of the country as a whole. And I think there is a moral attitude in that. And I think we're looking now at a society uh, where there are no boundaries of morals anywhere whatsoever. Any form of sexual behavior, any form of financial behavior virtually, um, it's all okay as as long as you can say, well, it's not hurting anybody, is it? And I worry about that. Lord Tebbit and Tom Chivers, thank you both very much. This episode of The Telegram is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, as well as a 100-strong Dublin, New York, and Oregon-based customer support team, on hand 24-7. And as a Telegram podcast listener, you'll receive 10% off your first purchase by using the offer code TELEGRAPH. The Times ran with an extraordinary graphic cartoon this week, Ed Miliband talking out of his backside. It was in response to his slightly confusing announcement that a Labour government would hold a referendum on membership of the EU, but only in the unlikely event of a new treaty ceding more powers to Brussels. That kind of promise has been made many times before, and many times it has been broken or adjusted to suit the politics of the moment. Indeed, what I'm going to discuss with Dan Hodges and John McTernan is the politics of all of this. Has Mr Miliband blundered, or has he made a very smart move? Does the public really even care about the EU? In which case, has Miliband quietly killed the issue? Or do the voters prefer clarity from their leaders? In which case, is Mr Miliband speaking from whence the sun never shines? John McTurner's on the phone, and I'd like to start by asking you, what do you think Ed is thinking here? Ed is thinking that the issue of the European Union and membership of the European Union divides uh, the Conservative Party but unites the Labour Party. Therefore, not an issue that we want to talk about in the Labour Party, but it is an issue we'd love to see the Tory party and UKIP uh, discussing every day until the next election. His gamble 
is that for the public, when you ask them, do you want a referendum on anything, they always say, yeah, I'd like a referendum because I'm the Democrat. But his guess is they don't really mean it on the European Union. They'll say, yes, they want a referendum. They won't care if there isn't one held. Uh, they're happy with the settlement we've got in Europe. They're happy to crumble about Europe. They've got no intention of, of leaving Europe. And it leaves this issue of the referendum a gaping wound, really, in the Tory party on an issue that they cannot resolve. And it leaves Cameron facing his Benite faction, the ones who'd rather lose the election than have him as their leader, uh, pulling and pulling him further and further to the right. As for the exact formulation this week, it was a classic Blairite formulation, which was, I'll give you a referendum, but here are the conditions, you know, like in the Apple conditions, the Google conditions, 75 pages later, you realize the conditions mean uh, that, that there will never be a referendum held because it's so so constricted and constrained uh, is the commitment to, to take a vote to the British public. I think, uh, as Lord Ashcroft does, this is, this is an open invitation for the Tory party to talk about the European Union until the next election, and it will drive voters away because the people who are going to vote uh, for a party that's against the European Union have already decided to vote UKIP or the Tories already. OK, thank you. Dan? Well, I think the problem is that what Ed Miliband's thinking and what Ed Miliband's saying are two different things, and we've had that graphically illustrated this week. I mean, it's quite clear what he's thinking. He's thinking he doesn't want to have a referendum. Uh, he's made that decision. I mean, he's instinctively pro-European. He does think that if he does enter Downing Street to spend the first year making preparations for and campaigning on that re referendum would be a massive distraction. Uh, and he also thinks, frankly, that if there were a referendum, there's a danger it would be lost. So that's why he's thinking he doesn't want one. The problem was this week, uh, the announcement he made on um, Tuesday was supposed to be an announcement which carried the headline, Ed Miliband offers a referendum. That was the briefing. That was how, indeed, it was initially reported by the BBC and The Guardian and The Mirror. And it was only, as, as John said, that when people actually looked at the detail that the penny dropped, that actually it was, it was ruling out a referendum. And that has been the big problem for Ed Miliband this week, as the, the Times cartoon graphically illustrated. He's been caught saying one thing when he actually means another. And as we know in politics, on whatever issue you're talking about, when that happens... Firstly, you are seen to be putting forward a, con a confusing message, and obviously that's what what Labour's done. That confusion is then interpreted as weakness, and Edmund Laband has been weak with this announcement because the reality is he, is he has shifted his position or shifted his narrative um, primarily because of, um, because of concerns within his shadow cabinet who wanted to see a firmer line on Europe and a firmer line that they could deploy on the, the, the doorstep. And obviously he's made the mistake that John just touched on, um, in which now Labour is seen to be confused and split and, and, and talking about an issue um, which is not part of what its core message should be to the country. But John was saying uh, that what really matters is that the voters don't care about Europe. Isn't that true, John? That, that what Miliband's done here is, is buried it and let the Tories talk about it rather than him. He's put the issue to bed. He's done it the week before the budget. It'll be, it'll be washed away by the budget next week. We'll be talking about the budget for quite a while uh, after, after it happens next week. And, and the issue from, from Miliband's point of view is he needed a pro-business policy because business have been spooked by the proposal to uh, raise the high, high, highest rate tax to 50 pence. This is a very pro-business policy. Uh, there's, there's no major business in Britain that, that welcomes the idea of a referendum, let alone the idea of leaving. 
the European Union. So he's got one big constituency who've read what he said, understand what it means, and they're happy with it. He's got a back, but he's got a he's got a party and a, and a labour movement as a whole who are all united in support of the European Union who don't really see the point in talking about it. He's got an answer to the to the to the Cameron accusation that you wouldn't give the public a choice when he can say, well. There are circumstances, conditions under which we'll give them, and you can just stand back. And as um, T.K. Chesterton once met uh, Evelyn Waugh coming out of a, of a building, and Waugh shouted at him, "I, I never make way for a fat fool." And G.K. Chesterton said, "I always do," and um, that's actually what Miliband's doing. <laughs> he's, he's making way uh, for the Tories to keep on harming themselves by obsessing about an issue that is so marginal to the public. Damn. Well, but I think John's just put the put the finger on what Ed Miliband's problem is. I mean, as he as he said initially, you know, this the, the fact is Ed Miliband has ruled out a referendum. But as he said, what he's been struggling to do is get himself into a position where he's ruled out a referendum, but that he could he could potentially say to the public, "Ah, oh, but I'll give you a referendum in circumstance X, X, Y, and Z." And obviously, what's happened this week is he's been rumbled. I mean, as John said, people very quickly came to realise that this was in effect ruling out a referendum and the Tories will run with that. I don't think the Tories will put it at the heart of their election strategy because, as as has been rightly said, the vast majority of voters don't see Europe as a main issue. But as we know, there is a small but important section of the electorate that is currently wavering between the Tories and UKIP who dislike Europe intensely, who passionately want a referendum, who want a referendum for not just because they don't like Europe, but because they don't like immigration and a whole range of other issues that they think can only be solved by our removal from Europe. And this is going to present them at the next election with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to actually have the referendum they want and, in their view, get us out of Europe and slay this European dragon. And that small percentage, that small but important percentage that could very well make the difference between a hung parliament or Labour being the single largest party right. or the Tories being the single largest party, the Tories being majority. David Cameron knows full well and Tory strategies know full, know full well that, they, that Ed Miliband has now handed them the perfect opportunity but, but to Dan, say if you Dan, want a referendum, there's only one vote. You, you, but you, Dan, I have never known an election, and unfortunately I'm 31 now, I've never known an election in which Europe has mattered. Um, by contrast, I have known many elections in which the Tories have banged on about Europe and it... Even if the public agreed with them, it has helped to define the Tories as obsessed with Europe and divided about it. So surely all Ed has done is restated Blair's policy, Brown's policy, which is basically to stay in, only with a veneer of, oh, if I have to, I'll have a vote. But this way, it leaves the Tories to talk about it. Yes, but that's the problem, isn't it? The public haven't seen the Tories banging on about Europe this week. It's the Tories have seen Labour banging on about Europe, and that is Ed Miliband's problem. Uh, he's been the, per- the person who's been who's been talking about Europe this week. He's done it in a spectacularly cack-handed way, as ever as all the headlines and the cartoon you read out have have illustrated. And now David Cameron, as as John said, David Cameron and the Tories are now going to move towards the budget. They're going to get back onto what is their strongest ground, which is which is the economy and issues such as taxation. Right. And the last thing late people in it sort of have seen from the Labour Party is Ed Miliband coming out out with some confused and, and perceived to be weak messages. John, is that what you're maybe. really saying? Is that what you're really saying, that the, the, the Tories now are, are the ones on the, uh, are going to be the ones able to focus on the economy and all the good stuff, and Miliband's going to be sort of fighting a rearguard action over this? I, I think the problem for the Tory party has been they have never known what to do to 
close down this issue in their own ranks. Right. Margaret Thatcher started it all. Margaret Thatcher was the most integrationist prime minister we've ever had in European terms. The single European market, it's hers. The single market is the thing which is driving almost all of the consequential treaty changes to try to, to create you know, a level playing field within Europe, mainly for the advantage of our businesses. But at the same time, she was the most anti-European in her rhetoric. So she said one thing and did another. Uh, that's left a legacy uh, of splits in the, in the Tory party. They do, they do bang on about this endlessly. Uh, Ed had to talk about it at some point. He's talked about it in, in this way. He's, cle- he's clearly indicated that he's not going to go the whole hog and rule out a referendum, which is what I would do, because in the end there will be no referendum and there will be, at some point in the future, people turn on him and say he's betrayed the voters just as Blair betrayed the voters by never having a, a referendum on the constitutional treaty, which itself yeah. collapsed under, you know, after opposition from, from but, but another... But he hasn't done it very clearly. You say he's done it clearly, but the whole point of this discussion mm-hmm. is, is that different newspapers reported it differently precisely because we were all confused as to what he had actually said. Because sure. he told one group of people one thing, another group of people another thing. And it, it either looks like he's manipulating them, or he doesn't actually know himself. I think, it, I, think it, I think it's more straightforward than, than that. This is a message to commentators, not a message to the public. The point is, commentators understand. He said, I'll have a referendum, but he said, these are the conditions. Everybody understands those conditions mean there will not be a referendum. So, so the commentators writing about this now understand where the framing is. The public were never going to pick up the Times uh, or the Guardian and go, ah, oh, we've got a referendum, I'm really reassured about it. Right. No one cares. It's, it's, a, it's a token in a battle. He can always say to the Tories when asked, of course I'll give a referendum if it's required. To the public, he's basically said, I've buried this issue, I'm going to talk about other things, and he'll be back on the cost of living, he'll be back on to yeah. uh, housing, back on to energy prices. But Dan, and no all, those things, all those things do work to his advantage. Dan, are you, are you sort of starting to look at what's happening right now and thinking that maybe in terms of a long game, he's played this, Ed Miliband's played this better than we thought? I mean, the Tories have run out of steam. They've got very little new legislative proposals. They've got a whole year to wait until the next election. And Miliband is starting to hit home on issues that really do matter to people. I mean, I see this EU announcement as trying to bury it, but he is talking about standards of living. Uh, he is talking about energy companies and those sorts of things. Um, he's even, you know, had some words on immigration that I think a lot of voters would like. It, has he now got a whole year ahead of him in which to really set the agenda? But, but can I repeat, he hasn't been setting the agenda this week, has he? I mean, he has, that's the whole problem. He has specifically been talking about the issue that, that you've said he, he, he shouldn't be talking about. Right. And I think as John has just, just demonstrated again, the problem for Ed Miliband with his European stance is that, as John said, I mean, he's, he's saying one thing to the commentators and he's sa- and indeed to the, the sort of the Europhiles in his party, and he's saying something else to the public and, and uh, who, who he believes to be significantly more, more Eurosceptic. And he's been rumbled on that. I mean, he's been caught, as John has just graphically uh, admitted, saying one thing to one group and complete, something completely different to another group. Right, and right. in politics... Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Do, Harold Wilson do... did that all the time. No one cared. They still voted for him. I mean, what, what really matters is the economy and, and people feeling he's, he's got policies that matter on the things that really matter to them. Well, they certainly don't think he's got the policies that matter on the economy, do they? I mean, I mean, John was saying there, you know, this is an attempt to reach out to the business community. I mean, 
you know, with the greatest respect. Right. I mean, the business community, you know, Labour can say they'll stay in Europe. They can say they'll stay in stay in Britain. They can stay in the world. There's absolutely nothing the Labour Party can do now, but between now and the next election, that is going to make the business community think think anything other than the Labour Party are a bunch of lunatics who will who will bring the track the country to destruction, given the policies they've been coming out with. But I mean, the fun you, you can't have it both ways. You can't say on the one hand actually he's been very effective because he's not talking about Europe, and then saying he's been brilliantly effective this week because he has talked about Europe. John McTernan, uh, the economy is slowly turning around. Uh, Ed Miliband has made loads of statements that are confusing people. Uh, Is this not just all a damning indictment of his leadership? There are two debates going on about the economy. There is the the Tory debate, which is an attempt to say, basically, we drove the economy into a ditch. Now give us some uh, congratulations for taking it out of the ditch. Um, and they have to go back to the numbers and they have to say, look, you know, the numbers are these, the numbers are these. It's, 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 a, it's a very bloodless uh, debate from their point of view. Ed Miliband's completely ignoring that debate and saying something different, which is essentially the Ronald Reagan argument. Do you feel better off today uh, than you did four years ago? And next year it'll be than you did five years ago. And you've just had today the announcement that, uh, you know, workers uh, in public service aren't going to get a pay increase. Well, they're not going to feel like good next year, right. uh, and that this is this is the the sore that, that Ed Miliband is is, is constantly pun- punching at, the, the, whether people feel better off, not not are we objectively according to the numbers better off, and this is the difficulty that, that the Tories have. Sometimes they address his, his policies directly, try and match him on energy prices. Other times they try and argue for a different point of view. We'll see you next week how uh, how George Osborne tries to portray the um, uh, portray the, the the budget. But the difficulty is that their strongest arguments are the most bloodless and least emotional, and Ed's strongest articles are the most emotional, most connecting uh, issues. That's really the terrain of which the two parties will be fighting over the next year to put the frame over the uh, over the debate. Mitt Romney was beaten by uh, Obama. We should remember this. Mitt Romney was beaten by Obama even though he led in all the polls on economic management all the way through, and Obama was fighting as a president wanting to get re-elected in a recession. So you can reframe these issues in a way okay. that the okay. votes will vote for you. Dan Hodges, final word to you. Ed Miliband, Britain's Barack Obama. Because uh, he's emotionally connecting. Yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly convinced about that. No, I mean, that's that's the fundamental problem, isn't it? I mean, and that's actually why this, this announcement this week was was damaging Fred Miliband because it did give the impression of confusion and as a result of that it gave the impression of weakness and that's the one thing that Ed Miliband can't afford because the reality is whatever you think about Labour's policies um, and and it's quite clear from the polls Labour is is well well behind the Tories on the economy but if you come on to the other key issue which is leadership again that is a real Achilles heel for for Labour Labour know it, the Tories know it and anything that sort of emphasises Ed Miliband's weaknesses as leader is something that Labour can can ill afford to do, and that for Labour is one of the problems this week, because that his weaknesses as a leader have actually again been illustrated. Dan Hodges and John McTinnon, thank you both very much. For more opinion and commentary, you can find us at telegraph.co.uk.